Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny, and I'm a research professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Friday, September 15th, and today I wanted to speak to you about the role of forward presence. Now, this topic is particularly relevant given that as I record this podcast, the major Russian military exercise known as Zapad has just started in Belarus, Russia, and Kaliningrad. Now, that major exercise involving perhaps tens of thousands of Russian troops, as well as Belarusian troops, uh, in addition to recent saber-rattling by North Korea on the Korean Peninsula, have raised anew questions over the size, structure, capabilities, and even positioning of U.S. military forces in Europe and on the Korean Peninsula. Those sorts of discussions that aren't really anything new. Since the end of the Cold War, the number of U.S. troops based overseas has steadily fallen. But that process of drawing down overseas forces really picked up about 15 years ago in the wake of the 2004 Integrated Global Posture and Basing Study published by the Bush administration, as well as a report by the administration to Congress that same year on strengthening global defense posture. Now, the Bush administration, as well as the Obama administration and key supporters in Congress, all relied on remarkably similar reasoning to kind of justify this downsizing in forces. Foremost was a perception that it was just cheaper to base American troops in the U.S. Because, for example, when we have soldiers based overseas, they need schools for their military dependents, they need chapels, etc. They need infrastructure that we don't always have to build here in the States at our military facilities. In fact, one study conducted for the Army in 2003 concluded there would be significant net annual savings associated with reducing the forward stationed forces, that is the number of troops overseas, and shifting them back home and instead relying upon rotational deployments, that is taking those forces that are based in the States, sending them without families overseas for a period of months or a year uh, to conduct deterrence and assurance activities and then bringing them back to the States. We also heard arguments about a, dr- a dramatically changed security environment in Europe, where armored units simply weren't needed any longer to deal with the threats or the challenges that we faced in our security. Now, others insisted that American forces were just easier to deploy to crisis locations from the U.S. than they are to deploy from Europe or Korea. Some advocates for reduced overseas stationing claimed that U.S. allies were increasingly weary of hosting American troops or that American military families themselves found their overseas tours to be onerous and too isolating from their extended families. Most recently, though, two particular arguments have been very prominent. The first is that military units that deploy from the U.S. to Europe or Korea for several months at a time are seen as better prepared for combat than those units that are permanently stationed overseas. Those deploying units go through an intense month-long training exercise immediately prior to their deployment. And then they maintain a very high pace of exercises and training activities while deployed in Korea or Europe, meaning that these units are usually at the height of what the military calls readiness. The second very common argument uh, in most recent years is that in an era of military downsizing, especially given the 2011 Budget Control Act, Most in Congress prefer to see defense cuts come at the expense of overseas basing in the hope that we can maintain more force structure here in the United States. But personnel cuts were 
too great to be taken entirely from overseas locations. Still, two brigades were cut from Europe and one from Korea. Now, the elimination of these three overseas brigades meant the Pentagon was able to maintain more force structure in the U.S., but it also meant the military needed to, to rely more on these rotational deployments that I described earlier to try to maintain the same overall number of troops in Europe and Korea at any given time. Now, there's another side of this debate, though, also. So not all decision makers and analysts, of course, favored this 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 seemingly relentless reduction in U.S. personnel stationed abroad over the last 25 years or so. For example, some in Congress questioned whether it would cost more to deploy forces from the U.S. in a time of crisis than it would be to have them stationed overseas. Others asked whether it didn't make more sense logistically to have more American troops based overseas where they're closer to potential crisis locations or whether Europe was likely to remain mostly benign as we thought it would a decade or more ago. In fact, the congressionally mandated Overseas Basing Commission raised many of these same concerns, but they were largely dismissed by executive branch officials at the time. Now, since this drawdown of overseas units accelerated about 15 years ago, many of the reasons cited by those in favor of the rotational deployments have not proven accurate or particularly valid. I base that statement on a recent 10-month study that I've completed that examines the cost and benefits, and I define those pretty broadly, of rotational deployments versus forward stationing. And my study, which you can find now at the SSI website, entitled Rotational Deployments versus Forward Stationing. How can the Army achieve assurance and deterrence effectively and efficiently? That study examines four different areas. First, fiscal costs. Second, diplomatic factors. Third, family readiness and well-being. And fourth, unit training readiness. In terms of fiscal costs, there's strong evidence to support the conclusion that in the cases of both Europe and South Korea, the Department of Defense is spending more than it originally anticipated to maintain this continuous heel-to-toe rotational presence. That is, when one unit rotates over to Europe or South Korea, it remains there for nine months and it is immediately replaced after that nine-month period by another unit from the U.S., first unit then rotates back to its home station. Now, perhaps greater concern is the fact that these rotational, continuous heel-to-toe presence deployments are more expensive, in fact, than forward stationing, at least in terms of recurring average annual costs. In terms of diplomatic or palm mill factors, my research shows that American allies prefer forward stationing over rotational deployments, because the forward stationing is seen as a sign of a stronger, more enduring commitments from the United States. Additionally, it probably shouldn't surprise anyone that U.S. military families bring economic benefits to those communities where they're based, and those benefits help to balance out some of the downsides of having troops as neighbors, such as increased noise levels. From a family readiness and well-being perspective, I found very strong anecdotal evidence indicating families and soldiers are dissatisfied with this shift toward a more U.S. stationed force. Soldiers and families believe that they're being asked to take on many of the same hardships as they do in a wartime rotation, but without the rewards of a combat patch, tax-free income, or combat pay. Now, more worrisomely, I found this evidence appears to be reflected by lower reenlistment rates, anywhere from 4 to 12% lower so far, for some rotationally deployed units during the 12 months following their rotations to Europe or South Korea. 
Now, I need to caveat that statement by saying that so far, this is just a correlation, and it's probably premature to say exactly what the cause is of these reduced reenlistment rates. Now, with regard to unit training readiness, rotationally deployed units do arrive in theater at a higher level of readiness. And of course, the very high operations tempo allows them to maintain that readiness throughout their nine to 10 month deployment overseas. Now, this is very appealing to U.S. commanders on the ground in Europe and Korea, the very senior U.S. commanders, who contend that the higher level of activity while these rotational units are in theater bolsters assurance to our allies and deterrence of our adversaries. And especially in the case of Korea, rotational deployments of whole units have brought a slightly higher degree of stability, reducing the personnel churn that broke up crews and small teams when individuals left for new duty stations, following their usually one-year tours of duty in Korea. However, I think it's highly unlikely that America's adversaries, or even its allies, recognize or care very much about the differences between a unit that's just conducted a 30-day training rotation uh, here in the U.S. and one that has not. After all, an armored brigade combat team that is a tank unit uh, is a pretty intimidating thing, whether it's just been to our National Training Center or not. Moreover, the training readiness advantages of a rotationally deployed unit are balanced out by the fact that there are significantly higher manning rates for the forward station units. So for instance, forward station units in Europe and South Korea are usually manned at about 95% of, of the unit requirement while rotationally deployed units head to Europe or South Korea at only about 70% strength. They need to maintain rear detachments back at their home stations here in the U.S. And finally, forward station units typically are more knowledgeable of foreign culture, foreign military units, the geography of Europe and Korea, the local political leaders, and their allied military counterparts. Now, rotationally deployed units can learn some of this over time, But by the time they've gained any significant local and regional knowledge, their rotation ends and they return to the U.S. for new assignments across our military. Now, in fairness, the Department of Defense has begun to recognize that it needs to restore a little more balance to the Army's overseas force posture. And to that end, the Pentagon has earmarked some additional force structure for forward stationing in Europe as part of an increase in end strength, or the total size of the Army, authorized by the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act, or the NDAA. Nonetheless, it seems clear that when considering all the available evidence that the Defense Department can more effectively and efficiently deter and assure by increasing its forward stationing beyond that which exists today. Along these lines, my study offers a series of recommendations. First, To minimize the negative morale associated with these 9 to 10 month heel-to-toe rotational deployments, the Army, I think, should end such rotations and instead conduct shorter-term, periodic, but regular rotations to South Korea and Europe. Now, these shorter-term deployments of maybe one to three months would still enable the Army to expose much of the force to overseas environments and to working with foreign counterparts, but without the burden of being away from home for so long. Second, The Army should forward station in Europe and South Korea heavy and similar equipment-intensive units, as well as those units that require the greatest depth of knowledge of local regulations, terrain, airspace, counterpart units, etc. Such units might include armored units, combat aviation units, air defense units, command and control, as well as logistics enablers like transportation units. 
And this would enable the military to minimize the recurring fiscal costs of transporting heavy equipment back and forth across the ocean while maximizing the opportunities to build interoperability with and among our allies. Third, and with specific regard to Europe, I think the Pentagon should aim to station these additional units, or as many as possible, either in whole or in part through split basing in Poland. Stationing in Poland would provide greater assurance to Eastern Europe and more effectively deter aggression. Most importantly, from a fiscal perspective, the Polish government has shown a willingness to share some of the costs of construction as well as base operations. Finally, and with specific regard to South Korea, I think the Army should normalize tours from one year to two or three years for as many of the forward station units there as possible, but especially for maneuver units like an armored brigade. Now, this would reduce personnel churn within those units and reinforce the strong U.S. commitment to South Korean defense. Now, I have no doubt that the more senior members of the U.S. military community will claim it's just impossible to maintain morale with longer accompanied tours, that is, soldiers with their families, in South Korea. They'll say that troops and their spouses simply don't like being sent to Korea. Now, I think this thinking may be somewhat outdated. And as construction of the massive and modern Camp Humphreys nears completion there, I think there's reason to think that an accompanied two-year assignment in South Korea might actually become quite coveted within an army that's increasingly U.S.-based. Regardless, though, of the specific overseas force posture and this balance that the U.S. adopts between a, a, a blend, really, of rotationally deployed forces and forward station forces in Europe and South Korea, I think the Army and the Department of Defense have to ensure a, a careful analysis of the many options. Since the end of the Cold War, during which time we had hundreds of thousands of soldiers stationed overseas, the pendulum, I think, has swung too far now in the direction of a U.S. stationed Army. As a result, the Army has come to rely on rotational deployments to maintain sufficient, continuous overseas presence at a great cost in fiscal and other terms. I think a rebalancing of the U.S. Army's force posture is necessary to achieve deterrence and assurance effectively and at a reasonable, sustained cost. If you'd like to read more about this most recent study I've authored on forward presence, you can go to the SSI website, that's ssi.armywarcollege.edu, where you can download it now for free. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcast, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or a response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our website. Again, that's ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.